Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Cinematic Universe, a podcast that's all about comic book movies, which you can find at cinematicmultiverse.com. I'm Joe Cunningham, and joining me to help make sense of the comics behind the movies are... Seb Patrick. And James Hunt. We'll discuss the latest comic book movie and TV news before diving into our spoiler-filled discussion of Brian Singer's 2000 film, X-Men. But before any of that, I'm going to ask Seb and James to explain the comic book concept that as a movie fan... I just don't understand. Except, big twist, guys. This week, it's not what I don't understand. It's what one of our listeners doesn't understand. Um, And so, um, one of the perks for our Patreon backers, and um, if you're a Patreon backer who who hasn't done this so far, take note, because you can, you can send in a question for Seven James to explain on the podcast. And so, that's what Paul Jeffs has done. And his question for Seven, Seven James is... And I think, Seb, this is more for you than James. What exactly are Kryptonian powers? Do all inhabitants <laughs> of Krypton have Superman-like powers when on their home planet? Or is it just Earth's yellow sun that gives Superman his skills? Is Kal-El special amongst his race of people? Or was there once a planet where everyone can do what Superman does? Can you help Paul out, Seb? And me a little bit. Um, I mean, this is a bit of a how long have you got? Because there's like the, I think the, the, the short answer to the question is depends when you're reading. Because it's one of those things that's changed over the years. But do you want to maybe a... give me and the rest of the listeners a brief synopsis, and then you could like yeah. <laughs> send Paul an email that's a tome, that's yeah. sure, like a Wikipedia page. Or he, could, or he could just look it up on Wikipedia. Um, but yeah, <laughs> um, but where will be the fun in that? Um, so, well, basically, as I think so. Originally, originally, the idea was that he was from a planet where everybody had superpowers. Like the first time that they showed Krypton in the stories. It was a planet where um, people, and I think they were even described as humans, but it was they were you know a human society that predated Earth, so they had evolved over thousands and thousands of years, and they had developed powers, so they were all powerful. Um, then that got changed at some point, probably late Golden Age, um, I think to the idea being that no, that on Krypton they were normal, but when he arrived on Earth, um, the um, basically the gravity on Krypton was stronger. So when he arrived on Earth, the lessened gravity was what enabled him to jump over buildings and be super strong and be super dense and that kind of thing. Um, then at some point, again, I guess probably like early Silver Age, 
they refined that to being the idea that everyone knows, which is that Krypton has a red sun, Earth has a yellow sun, and it's rays of the yellow sun that give him his powers. Um, in answer to the latter part of the question, although I think it's, that's probably already answered it, um, Superman, and I mean, this is a bone of contention that I think I brought up during Man of Steel, Superman is not special on Krypton. Aside from the fact that he's the son of Jor-El and Jor-El is a noted scientist, but aside from that like anyone who was sent to Earth from Krypton would have exactly the same powers as Superman and it annoyed me in Man of Steel that it kind of built in a kind of chosen one narrative and that he was this special birth on Krypton even before he got sent to Earth because for me that's not the ethos of Superman. Um, As far as what powers he's got, I mean, again, it's your, you know, I mean, people know the basic power set of flight, strength, invulnerability... Shooting mini Superman. Um, shooting mini Superman from his hands. Yes, that was a. During the Silver Age, you got a lot of you know throwing in like new ideas for powers that didn't usually last, and they did it recently in the New Fifty Two by giving him a solar flare power that was pointless and stupid. Um, but the basics, um, yeah, the kind of you know flight, strength, and vulnerability, the X-ray vision, the microscopic vision, the heat vision, you know, there, and the super breath that cools things down. I mean. The thing about Superman is that pretty much every one of his powers are essentially extrapolating, like, being an enhanced human. That's kind of what works about his powers, is that every, almost every one of his powers is, an, apart from possibly the heat vision, um, is, an, is an enhanced element of, you know, a human skill sort of thing. So, um, yeah, that's basically it. Fantastic. Well, hopefully that has uh, answered all of Paul's questions. Um, and if not, you can send us an angry email saying, Seb, you didn't, you didn't <laughs> fully explain that thing. Um, but it's it sounded pretty good to me. Um, and we'll move on now to the news section. And I mean, guys, I feel like this is going to be a pretty bumper podcast because we have a movie coming up to discuss, which, um, you know, is, is perhaps one of the key texts in superhero movies. And... There's also a lot of news as well, so we'll try and get through this as fast as we can, but there's some big news that we cannot ignore. Um, And we'll kick things off with Netflix, because at New York Comic Con last weekend, um, a bunch of news came out about the Netflix shows. Uh, The Punisher is now in production, so it sounds like that will be coming after Iron Fist, um, and then The Defenders after that, probably. Um, But The Punisher is going to feature Karen Page, um, ben Barnes, as we speculated would make sense, is playing Jigsaw. Um, we got a look at the Iron Fist trailer and the Defenders. We don't know an awful lot about it and we don't know who she's playing, but Sigourney Weaver is playing the villain. So what of that can you get excited about and what of that makes you go bleh? Because I'll tell you what made me go bleh, that <laughs> Iron it- Fist trailer. Oh, I thought you were going to say it was Karen Page being in well, Punisher. Well, also, also Karen Page. But ideally, if she's <laughs> spending more time with the Punisher and more t- and less time on journalism, that would be a good thing. Um, I actually, you know, I should have done, but I haven't watched the Iron Fist trailer yet, which tells you how <laughs> completely and utterly disinterested I am in Iron Fist. And I think because I didn't see anyone coming away from it going, wow, that Iron Fist trailer looked amazing. So Yeah, I only um, caught that it had come out as like a... Like I was catching up on NYCC news, and it was like, "Oh, the Iron Fist trailer came out." I mean, Doesn't I'm great, prepared to be r- proved wrong, but Finn Jones looks uh, like Blandy McBlanderson, and 
his fist lights up in the trailer and he punches someone and there's a corridor fight. There's going to be another bloody corridor fight, guys. Surely they're doing Netflix, that deliberately that's now. the Netflix algorithm. It's like, people love yeah. that fight in the corridor, so let's put one in everything. But do you yeah. not think they're now doing it as a deliberate knowing self-homage? It's not a, these thing, people must love these things, so we must do them. It's a, people expect us to do them, so we do it almost as a gag. Is I that mean, not maybe. the thing? Like, there, was one in, there was one in Civil War as well. Like, <laughs> I think it's just a trend of like, oh, people have realised sort of fights in close quarters are more thrilling. Mm. So that's what's I, happening. I don't, I'm I'm starting to, and we'll we'll get to this when we get to our Luke Cage bonus episode. But I'm in, I'm only three or four episodes into Luke Cage, but already I'm like ah, that happened in Daredevil, and that and that was executed better early on, or like <laughs> it just feels like the tone of these shows is so similar going between them, and that. I, I don't know, there's not much excitement for me going into Iron Fist because I don't really feel like I'm going to see anything drastically different to what I've seen in the other shows. And in retrospect, I probably appreciate Jessica Jones a lot more for that. That that feels like the the standout at this point. Um, in that it just doesn't feel quite as similar as the other two. But even so, has a lot of the same elements running through it. Uh, I think I think this is the problem as well when it comes to potentially getting excited about Sigourney Weaver in Defenders because you know that in in almost every conceivable way that's a fantastic piece of news like you know Sigourney Weaver is, I mean is there is there anyone who doesn't think that Sigourney Weaver is absolutely amazing and also yeah as far as the Netflix shows go she must be the biggest star they've attracted to appear in any of them. Yeah, I mean, I in terms of in terms of being movie close. stars, I think D'Onofrio is the the closest. Otherwise, yeah. So that's you know that's really big. That's a really big coup. It's going to get a lot of people talking about it. As I say, I mean, you know, I don't think I I couldn't think of anyone who doesn't think that Sigourney Weaver is absolutely brilliant in in all respects. Um, unfortunately, it's you know are we reaching a point already where there's a slight sense of ennui about these? And I know I hit that sense slightly earlier than everybody else. I would still, you know, the one I will happily go back to and, and start, even if I haven't watched the others, is Defenders. You know, I'll, I'll want to see what they're doing with that. But I haven't watched Luke Cage yet. I doubt, even if I catch up with all of the others, I'm not sure I'll ever watch Iron Fist. Um, but... Yeah, I would be more excited about Sigourney Weaver being cast as the villain in like Guardians of the Galaxy two than than in well, one of the Netflix series. Should we maybe talk about the rumor of who Sigourney Weaver is playing then? Because yes, because I've heard through... nothing on this, so that would be interesting. <laughs> so when you run through the kind of the key villains that these characters have, I mean, Jessica Jones doesn't really have a back catalogue of villains Sigourney Weaver doesn't make sense at first glance for any Iron Fist villains and she and, and he doesn't have the most interesting gross gallery from what I can see anyway um, and then Luke Cage she doesn't really seem to fit and then you can kind of make a case for could she be like an old retired hit woman and that she's bullseye or could she be typhoid Mary for Daredevil um, but none of it really makes a huge amount of sense um, but then I was listening to another podcast. Well, I was listening to a podcast a few weeks ago. Um, Dave Gonzalez, who writes for Geek.com, said that he heard rumours that potentially the Defenders was going to drastically increase the scope of what the kind of villains that the Defenders had individually been facing. And then I read online today that Sigourney Weaver was rumoured to be playing Mephisto. <laughs> 
Now, that, uh-huh. that again, that kind of piques my interest and go, huh. And they've talked about... Mephisto has apparently been referenced by Ghost Rider on this season's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Jeff Loeb has hinted that the Netflix shows and Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. may cross over at some point. So... I'm sorry. I'm 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 giving that one um, a gambit rating on the <laughs> never going to happen stakes, yeah. <laughs> which well, all of it are. Uh, Mephisto. She's not going to be playing Mephisto. Why not? Um, well, because one, that would be insane. It, one, it would be insane. It just it wouldn't fit. Never mind. It wouldn't fit with the the Marvel TV shows. It would. I mean, even with the stuff that the MCU is expanding into doing that is still a step far beyond also because of uh Spider-Man one more day in terms of fan um attitude or reception or reaction or whatever Mephisto is toxic as a character at the moment uh, I because mean, of come that on, Spider-Man like, story the 300 people who still read comics aren't going to make enough <laughs> of a wave for that to I matter suppose, but... it's more just like it's just a completely insane choice given the tone of these shows so far. Like mm. to have those characters face who a character who's essentially Satan. I I'm gonna be so happy if this eventually happens. This is gonna be like Vision's solar gem all over again. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying it will happen, but I just I'm enjoying how emphatically you're both shooting it down. <laughs> Sigourney Weaver would be a great Mephisto. But if nothing else, that character is someone they're going to save for a Doctor Strange sequel or something. Like, they're not going to let the TV have Mephisto. No. He's too big. So who who is your money on? If you have to pick one character right now that you think she is playing. If, if I was going to pick someone, and I'm not, because I think, if anything, she's going to turn out to be a gender-swapped male character. Because I just can't think of anyone big enough for her to play otherwise. Um, yeah, it's the Olivia Coleman problem. <laughs> yeah, like... I would probably go... Actually, I could see her playing a really good Vanessa Fisk, but that role is already taken. Um, uh, maybe... Maybe Despair? Like, or Nightmare? Like, if they want to do a supernatural villain... Right, rather than Mephisto, for a future, explain like, this comic book concept yeah. to me. <laughs> Basically, they're kind of supernatural villains in the vein of Mephisto, but without the baggage of being Satan. Because if, if that rumour's true that they want to expand out and, and, like, do something a lot bigger than what they've done before for the Defenders, what direction makes sense to go in? <laughs> but I'm not sure they can because they're say, a like, Netflix the, show. It's know? so street level. Like, yeah. it's so street level they can't do anything more than they've done without making it seem just completely mental. So Bullseye, then. Bullseye is as big as you can get. Again, like Bullseye, Bullseye's too big a character for them to sort of monkey around with it like that. Mysterio. (laughs) Mysterio is owned by Sony, so yeah, yeah, but they're all friends now. As in fact, let's use let's use that as a seamless segue. Unless wait, Seb, did you have an answer? (laughs) I'm just trying to think if there's another kingpin-esque character because that all i can think is crime lord um but obviously they you know <laughs> she couldn't be a female version of the owl because we've had the owl as well haven't we hmm. um female silvermane might work yeah um justine hammer <laughs> 
it's yeah i mean i i think it's going to be one of those that's a sort of um out of complete left field sort of thing um i'm trying to think if there's no because there's there's not really any storylines from like jessica jones alias or anything that no i did um, i did i did some googling to try and see if anyone obvious jumped out and it really didn't she would be a good countess allegra de fontaine <laughs> I'm putting my money on a, on Mephisto. All, all all I can say in terms of a prediction is it will be uh, a name of a character, maybe a lesser known character that they make into a bigger deal in this than they are in the comics. They'll take the name of a character and make them a major villain. Does but the hand it won't have be a, a recognizable villain? Does the hand have a leader? Daredevil. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Before that, I'm not sure. <laughs> mm. Sorry, spo- spoilering I mean, late today. Daredevil, Daredevil comics. Really <laughs> she though. could, she could be like the leader of the hand, like mm. if they introduce a new one. But again, there's no like, there's really no obvious choice. So okay, so Sigourney Weaver is definitely playing Mephisto. That's what I'm taking okay. from that. Um, <laughs> we'll move on now to some Sony news um, because um, the Sony CEO uh, Tom Rothman. Um, so is he CEO? The guy who runs the studio, Tom Rothman, in fact, I think was probably in charge of Fox back when they made X-Men. Um, he has been giving interviews and has said that the Spider-Man spin-offs are still in the works. Um, so I believe back back when um, the Amazing Spider-Man franchise was still active, they were talking about potentially a Sinister Six movie, um, maybe without even Spider-Man in it. Um, there was talk of a female-led movie with characters like Silk being involved, um, Venom spin-offs, all that kind of stuff was uh, was in the ether. Except now Spider-Man is part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um, I believe Sony can produce spin-offs and don't have to co-produce them with Marvel and can keep all of the money. Um, but given that this is sh- a shared universe, I imagine that there is some kind of stipulation that marvel sign off on whatever their plans are so are you are you guys still as down on this as you were back when it was um sony's plans in their amazing spider-man universe because i think back at the time they sounded like dreadful ideas there was even that one floating around about a young aunt may movie um which um we've got young aunt may now so no need for that um there is only one spin-off that i can see working in terms of them taking something completely and just and just doing something standalone and and i think we have talked about it before but even then i think it's something that works better as part of a wider marvel universe and that's agent venom if they did flash thompson as agent venom that could stand up as a film on its own Mm. otherwise these continue to be terrible ideas and they also continue to be something that once again like gambit will never happen like they just won't they just i mean i i almost don't want to waste our breath talking about these films that will not happen because they just won't happen (laughs) i want an alternate universe spider gwen movie with emma i was about to say i can sort of imagine them getting like tom holland into cameo as a lizard peter parker in a spider gwen movie that would be cool they are completely allowed to do emma stone as spider gwen that that is completely allowable Yes, yeah, but otherwise. Yes. <laughs> okay, um, fantastic. We'll move straight on um, to um, our Wolverine 3 news. Not called Wolverine 3 anymore, you guys. It's called Logan. And this, there is a This poster. really annoys me because it was clearly going to be called Old Man Logan until someone at a studio somewhere went like... 
people don't want to see films about old men. We'll just call it Logan. Do you, no, see, the, see, I'm the complete opposite. It doesn't annoy me because I like to think that somebody saw the title Old Man Logan and said that is one of the worst titles I've ever seen. Like yeah, it was a shit title for the comic and it's a shit title for a film. And I'm really glad that they've just changed it to it Logan. Adequately it's adequately describes the content. Title. It adequately <laughs> describes the content of the story, which was about Wolverine being old. Yeah, but Wolverine is already old. Like Wolverine in the year yeah, two thousand is old man Logan. <laughs> like any any Wolverine story could be called old man Logan. I like, really didn't think him this being, would be a point it of should, conflict. It should be podcast. called the Mark Miller story should be called even older man Logan. <laughs> Geriatric man Logan. <laughs> right, okay. Need Sorry, I just call, I've, call I've down always from all hate that heat. I've always hated that title, and ever since they've said that the movie was going to be based on it, I've always thought, please don't call the movie that. So I'm delighted that they're not calling it that. <laughs> and I think Logan's a good X-Men title. Origins, because Logan, colon, old man. <laughs> but what I like is that, like, you know, that poster and that title, I like that the, that the character is at a point, and has been for some time, where you can put those two elements on a poster and everyone knows what it is, and it's a quite nice way to round things off by acknowledging that, you know, it's been... You know, we're about to talk about the film where he made his debut, but it's been 16 years, and that character has firmly embedded himself in, in the movie-going consciousness, mm. and this is a quite nice capstone to that. So, I just... I find the yeah. trend of, like, giving films, like, names, just, like, characters' names really sort of dull, though, like, when they call it, like, Jason Rocky Balboa, Bourne. or John Rambo, or Jason <laughs> yeah. Bourne. It's like, yeah, okay... And this is just another example of that. It's like it could be worse. They could have called it James Howlett. <laughs> it's just like it's the blandest option. It is, far. but it's better than Old Man Logan. Mm. Like I it feel, is a bland option. But I feel like we're getting bogged down in right. We're going to Twitter poll this, niche. and we're going to we're going to see which people vote for. <laughs> well, uh, what we do know is that that poster with Wolverine holding a child's hand. That child is going to be X twenty three. Um, and uh, the movie is going to be about some kind of scientific organisation who are trying to weaponize children. Um, and X-23 will be a child who Wolverine kind of saves and takes under his wing. Um, we will be seeing Boyd Holbrook playing Donald Pierce. Richard E. Grant will be playing Xander Rice. And we are no longer expecting to see Mr. Sinister in the film. Uh, that's according to a report on The Wrap. Um, so, what do you think about all that stuff, guys? And who are Donald Pierce and Xander Rice? Are they just kind of like generic Marvel scientists, or is there something more to look forward to there? Uh, Donald Pierce is a member of the Hellfire Club, or the inner circle of the Hellfire Club, who was... Uh, traditionally, he's like a cyborg. Um, there's not really much more to him than that, to be honest. Okay, but I guess it makes sense with the futuristic vibe to have a cyborg in there. Yeah, um, and Xander Rice is he going to be the guy that's experimenting on the kids? Just kind of like typical mad scientist. Uh, yeah, in the comics, he's a scientist whose father worked on Weapon X, I believe. So uh, I haven't actually read any stuff with him in, but that's that's the character's origin. So yeah, it's pretty pretty certain he's going to be some kind of mad scientist dude. Should it be surprising that Mr. Sinister isn't here, given the Essex Corp tease and given everything else we know about that movie? Well, or do you think it's... they're just do you think they're just saving him for the kind of the main X Men franchise? It's possible he will be. Um... It's possible Xander Rice will be revealed as Essex 
because Sinister's one of those characters who can shapeshift and stuff and often poses as other people to, you know, work in secret. I'm like Sinister seemed like a bad fit for Wolverine anyway because those two characters have not much in common. Like there's no nothing linking their origins. Uh, have you not read Origin two? Well, yeah. But, <laughs> I mean, that was to be fair. That was Kieran introducing a character who had written in his X Men run mm. and had some affection for, rather than yeah, than know, any linking. any need for them to be linked together. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Sorry, Zan- I just checked. Xander Rice was part was part of X twenty three's origin story, so that's right. Okay, so this is comes from yeah. So this is basically it sounds like an X twenty three origin story with an old man Logan as part of it, and also an old Professor X. Um, and I don't know, did you guys see much of the stuff that was was coming out with the, um, James Mangold's like first page of his script was was revealed and a picture yeah. of of old Patrick Stewart. And the, the implication was going to be that Wolverine's healing power is kind of fading and that this isn't... I think there was some line in the thing about this isn't going to be your usual superhero CGI bullshit fest or something like that. that, that <laughs> we'll that, see. That, 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 <laughs> that the violence will have lasting effects and that mm-hmm. you've basically got kind of a doddery, senile old Professor X who's being cared for by Logan. Um I don't know where this fits into the timeline, whether it's original timeline, whether it's old timeline. I I, I think it will be after, like, revised Happy Future timeline. After Days of Future Past. After Days of Future Past, yeah. Yeah. So no Sentinel Apocalypse, but... Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. Um, But which would mean it's in a different timeline from the Wolverine. No, no. No, I think I think it will be set. No, but the, far, the, long the, after the Wolverine is original timeline. It's the same Wolverine. Yeah. It's the same character, but that happened to him in the original timeline. Then he time travelled back, changed the timeline, and those events never happened. I think the events of the Wolverine still happen to some extent. Like it's not very clear what got wiped down, what didn't, is it? Ah, <laughs> uh, the X Men franchise. <laughs> <laughs> I was, Once I was again. Talking, I was, We've thought about it more than anyone involved with the films. Yeah. I was saying this to, to my family while while we were watching the film that we're about to discuss the other night, but, um, you know, X-Men comics developed this reputation over the years for being these incredible continuity-laden, impenetrable stories that you couldn't possibly follow unless you'd been following them for years and years. And then the movies come along and sweep all of that away and present you with this nice, new, accessible take. Um, and then 15 years later, the movies have got themselves into exactly the same state that the comics had done in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, it's, it's impressive with how how tangled they've managed to make this web. I'm more interested in this than any future X-Men film, I'll say that much. Not least because Patrick Stewart and... Uh, what's his name? Hugh <laughs> forgotten his name. Hugh Jackman. Hugh Jackman. Patrick yeah. Stewart and Hugh Jackman are the best parts of this yeah. movie we're about to watch. So, uh, yeah, know, I kind like, of like bookending the franchise with those. I, I, I really like Hugh Jackman and I really like Hugh Jackman's Wolverine. And, yeah, he, you know, I've sat through several mediocre films with that character in and been happy to follow that character through some pretty mediocre films as well as some really good ones. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm naturally more inclined to, to want to see this one through than, yeah. say, a Gambit movie. 
It's going to happen to you guys. Um, we'll move on to, <laughs> to our. To be final fair, piece if it of... happens with, if it happens and it is Channing Tatum, I won't complain because Channing Tatum's great. But it's still it's not, not going to happen. So it doesn't it's matter. Not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> I think Channing, at the very least, Channing Tatum will play Gambit. Whether that is in a solo movie or not is what remains to be seen. But I, or, or I whether believe... whether it's in a YouTube comedy sketch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Probably be a, cam- a cameo in Deadpool joking about how his movie's never going to happen. Um, yeah, but we'll move on to our final piece of news now. And this is um, some casting news for Black Panther. Um, so I mentioned on the last minisode that Winston Duke had been cast as um, Manape, except he won't be called Manape. Um, he'll be called by his actual name, which I can't remember. Um, but other exciting news, and um, this is just like a triple threat of great news as far as I'm concerned. Three names added to the cast. One, Forrest Whitaker. Two, Daniel Kaluuya, who is going to be... Um, he's hes about to break big, I think. Um, and it, this may be one of those cases of Marvel um, underselling a great actor before they become a star. Um, and also Florence Kasumba, who um, is uh, rejoining the Marvel Cinematic Universe because she was the uh, bodyguard that Black Panther had yeah. in Civil War. So it's fantastic. She was a, a big hit in her brief screen, screen time in Civil War. So it's good to see her turning back up. Um, guys, this cast is getting real, real good, right? Forrest Whitaker. <laughs> I hope he's just playing Idi Amin. Like you know, like you know, like how it, it, we we you've got that famous cover of um, of uh, Captain America punching Hitler that you just you you kind of do that for comics with Black Panther punching Idi Amin. It's just a pre- he's not doing, but that would be a great like pre-title sequence <laughs> flashback. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know any of the I don't know any of the other new actors in this list really. Like I'm. You know, I'm famously bad with actors anyway, but I've never, <laughs> don't think I've seen anything aside from Civil War that has most of these characters in. I think Daniel Kaluuya was one of my one of my pitches to you guys for a Captain Britain, just as a young British actor who's really good. So yeah, I'm I'm very keen to see it. He was in Sicario. If you watch that, he was in Kickass Two. Um, he's about to be in Get Out, which is uh, Jordan Peele's um, horror movie. Um, He's he's gonna you're you're gonna start seeing him a lot. He was also in uh, he was also the lead in one of the early Black Mirror episodes, um, and he was in the Fades. I'm just looking down his uh, IMDb now. There's loads of stuff. You are basically when he turns up in something, you're gonna like him. Seb will okay. recognize him because he was in the Planet of the Dead episode of Doctor Who. That's about the worst possible episode for him to have been in in terms of me recognising him because it's one of the worst episodes of Modern Who and I've never rewatched it. <laughs> it's not his. It's not his fault. I can promise you. But he's great. He's great, is what I'm trying to say. Um, and I'm, yeah, I'm. I'm looking forward to Black Panther a, a whole lot. It's one. It's it's getting higher and higher on, on my anticipated movies list. Um, okay, well, we'll move on now um, to our main discussion. Um, of Brian Singer's 2000 film X-Men um, but we'll take a brief listen to the original trailer for that movie before diving into our spoiler-filled discussion Ladies and gentlemen we are now seeing the beginnings of another stage of human evolution In every human being There's not many people that will understand people like us There exists the genetic code You'll be safe here What kind of place is this? You're not the only one with gifts. For mutation, 
The truth is, mutants are very real. And they are among us. We must know who they are, and above all, what they can do. A change is coming. Are you a God-fearing man, Senator? And those we fear... Magneto believes that a war is brewing between mutants and the rest of humanity. ...will be all that can save us. If no one is equipped to oppose them, humanity's days could be over. You're a mutant. The whole world out there is full of people that hate and fear you, and you're wasting your time trying to protect them? You sure you're on the right side? I have made the first move. That is all I know. He could wipe out everyone in New York City. Logan, help us. Fight with us. Okay, so that was the trailer for X-Men, um, and I said this earlier on the podcast, guys, but this, to me, feels like um, when you're tracing back the history of superhero movies, like one of the key texts. So, obviously, you've got your, your Superman and Batmans a lot earlier than this, um, but I think this is usually, and I know some people could kind of uh, point to Blade, uh, but for me, Blade feels like more of a 90s action movie that um, happened to be a superhero movie towards the end of this decade, whereas X-Men feels like the kind of... Mm. The, the superhero movie that got this ball rolling and that it stuttered at certain points afterwards and there was other films that had to pick up the mantle <laughs> and keep things going but this is kind of for me the catalyst um for what we now have which is you know six to eight superhero movies being released in cinemas every year um you can probably remember it being released better than i can because uh, you are both so much older than than I, de- I almost hesitate to ask how old you were when this came out. <laughs> I was, uh, I was, uh, wait, when did it, when did it come out? Of course, yeah. Uh, yes, I was um, a, a month away from turning 11. Ah, <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> so I wasn't okay. old enough, I wasn't old enough to go to cinema on my own at that point. Ah, uh, no, I was <laughs> 17 when it came out. This this was the first film that I reviewed in print uh, because... It had come out uh, in the summer in the US, but it didn't come out until the autumn in the UK. No, that's uh, not true. Isn't it? No, because I went, I went to see it the night before uh, the Reading Festival started. So that was August. Oh, okay, but that's that's late August, but it had come out in like July in, yeah, in the US. Yeah. Um, 
and I uh, was doing work experience at the local newspaper, but I'd seen it before it came out because uh, my uncle was stationed on an American RAF base in Germany. So because it was an American <laughs> base, they had a cinema showing films like at American pace, uh, and we went to see X-Men. It was it was my first experience of, of watching a film in an American cinema with the thing of... Well, an American cinema and the fact that it was on... A, must have been more because it was on a military base, but they played the national anthem beforehand and everyone applauded when the um, closing credits started. It was surreal. Um, but, yeah, so I, I then, sort of having seen this film before it was released, wrote a little review for the uh, local newspaper while I was doing work experience there. So it was my first ever piece of official film criticism was this film. <laughs> Meanwhile, you were ten. <laughs> Just upsetting. Yes. <laughs> so, well, one of the questions I wanted to ask you guys about this at the time was, did this feel like... <laughs> a really big deal in terms of a comic book movie because i mean you've got you've got a, a cast that has some um well it's got patrick stewart and ian mckellen in two key roles who feel like they bring a degree of gravitas for this to this you've got a guy coming off the usual suspects which uh, as director which was you know hugely respected and revered at the time um and it does seem to me like it, there is... I mean, you open up this film with um, a scene in, uh, you know, in the camps at the Holocaust, and you, it, it feels like a statement of intent going, this is something you should take a little bit more seriously than, say, <laughs> I don't know, Nick Fury. Um, so, yeah, was there a sense of that at the time? I I remember, certainly in the fan press, like... They heaped everything onto the success of X-Men. Mm. Like, Wizard Magazine, uh, the sort of nascent comic book resources, like, they were behind it in a big way. Like, this, I remember, this is one of the first films of, like, the internet era in the... Uh, for, like, maybe a year and mm. a half in advance of the release, I was following, like, set-leaked photos and casting, like, literally everything. There was a website called Coming Attractions, and I used to just check it every day for news about x-men like certainly for a specific portion of the fan press it was like the biggest thing that was coming since probably the first superman movie definitely i mean what's what's strange about that though is how short a time it was after um batman and robin and <laughs> i mean at that stage i guess they must have given up on batman triumphant by then but I don't. If they had, I don't think they would have given up on it that long beforehand. Because if you know, Batman, Batman and Robin came out in '97, so I reckon Batman Triumphant would have still been on the cards until '98, because it was aiming. It would have been aiming to be released around '99. Obviously, then they dropped it. Um, and I know that they then moved on to wanting to do a Batman Year One film, but the, the point is, like, we what again is like we think of X Men, and it is as the start of this new era, but we were only a very short time after the end of the previous era. It wasn't like we had this ten-year lull where there weren't any superhero films. Mm -hmm. um, the funny thing, though, about James, just about what you were saying about the build-up and sort of everybody being behind it. In in that sense, they were because, I, and I think there was this sense that so much was riding on it. Equally. I do remember a lot of bristling the first time a photo came out showing the black costumes 
Um, <laughs> there, there was a lot of fan opprobrium about what they were doing with the costumes. Um, I, I remember seeing people go, that doesn't look like the X-Men. <laughs> In retrospect, it does. It's disappointing with the black leather, and I had that problem with um, X Men Apocalypse this year that they went back to the black leather. Mm. But more in at the, in at retro- the time, at the time it, it makes so much sense because you yeah. know if you have got all of this riding on the future of comic book movies after, and I'm sure that Brian Singer wasn't thinking in these terms, but after Batman and Robin, if this fails and fails in a big way, you're probably not going to have the movies that follow it. Obviously, Spider-Man was probably well into production, but maybe there would have been a bit more trepidation on Sony's part there in terms of marketing mm. it. Maybe I'm they... not even sure Spider-Man would have happened without the success of X-Men, to be honest. they may have been. It may have been in the pipeline, but... I don't think it would have happened the way it did if if this hadn't been a hit. Well, and it probably wouldn't have had the the huge opening weekend that that it had. And um, but yeah, mm. so uh, it, some of the, all of that stuff kind of makes sense to me. Um, you know why why those changes were made, and yeah, it it just it does just looking back on it, it seems to me like something that is trying to say, look. This is a comic book movie, but you need to treat. We're treating this more seriously, you know, um, with the talent behind it, with the people who are starring in it, um, and 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 I guess in in that way it feels separate from a '90s action movie because it has ideas at its center as well beyond the comic book movies that had come before. Um, and certainly some of the lower budget Marvel ones that had been kind of knocking around and going straight to DVD and whatnot. Um, again, you can kind of look at Blade a couple of years earlier and go, yeah, that's a comic book movie from the late 90s that feels distinct and darker. And But yeah, but Blade doesn't have that this central uh, idea behind it beyond this is a comic book plot in a comic book movie. Whereas X-Men, it, it feels like it's trying to do something and say something and... Um, in in a way that maybe a lot of modern superhero movies do, that they've got that idea there and it kind of gets lost by the time you have to get to the final big action sequence and it's a little bit disappointing, but it was there and they were trying to do something with it. I mean, I think I think you're right that it, it took, like, you know, the X-Men's kind of core philosophical tenets and, like, remembered to include them in the movie. Um... What interested me when I went back to it was actually how much it retained a lot of the kind of 90s campness. Um, because like on one hand, you've got this kind of battle of ideologies, which is central and has been central to the film's universe, like for pretty much every X-Men sequel they've done, like it's come up like that. As far as the Fox is concerned, that's what the X-Men films are about. It's like the you know, supremacist ideology versus the, you know, integration or whatever. But at the same time, you've got a version of Magneto who is, like, living in an underground base and building Kirby Tech machines. Like, it's really... Like, it's a really odd... Like, it takes a lot from the Silver Age Magneto, which I didn't really appreciate until we went back and watched it and and that that bit's all a bit rubbish isn't it <laughs> and, and and an ending with a great big yeah. 
Statue of Liberty machine <laughs> wave pulse thing that's going to turn everybody into mutants. Like, that's yeah, well, that's pretty the thing. ridiculous. Like, on the one really. hand, it's really like, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's really lofty. And then on the other, it's still got like, if Batman and Robin showed up in the middle of it, it wouldn't feel that out of place. <laughs> uh, maybe it is then that you've mm. got an actor like Ian McKellen, you know, and you've got Patrick Stewart and these two kind of British Shakespearean thespes. Um, you know, spouting their ideas at each other around it that kind of masks masks that silliness for a lot of the time. Well, I mean, I mean, up up front, they are the three brilliant things that this. Uh, well, sorry, they <laughs> uh, they are two of the three brilliant things that this film does, and and I think the three brilliant things that this film does are three pieces of casting, um, and like, you know. You you can buy into so much of what this film is doing because, firstly, they've cast the guy who everyone knew should always <laughs> have been yeah. Professor X as Professor X. Like, in 1994, Alex Ross was drawing Professor X as Patrick Stewart in Marvels, you know. Uh, he was also draw- he was drawing Tony Stark as Timothy Dalton, which, <laughs> if they had done an Iron Man movie in the 90s, would have been absolutely perfect. Um, but, you know, it's like they, they, they could not make an... I mean, I know they can now because McAvoy, but then they could not make an X-Men film and not have Patrick Stewart be Xavier. So they did that. They got Ian McKellen, who... Um, um, like it's weird to think of a time when Ian McKellen wasn't a massive star, but he wasn't at that point. I think he'd done Gods and Monsters, and he'd done like some. I think he'd done a movie version of Richard the Third, but he hadn't done a lot of movies at that point. He was a stage actor, and well, to... I get, he was he was cast here because Singer had worked with him before on Apt People, uh, yeah. the Stephen King yeah. adaptation, which was his film before. Usual suspects. Yeah, so it's you know, um, so they, but just this idea of putting someone like McKellen as the villain in this, you know, a left field choice that just, you know, now you can't imagine anything else. And like so much of what works about this film works because of McKellen. Arguably more him than Patrick Stewart, because one of the things that struck me watching it again was how little Patrick Stewart is actually in the film, especially compared with McKellen. Um, and then obviously the third, <laughs> the third masterstroke was casting Dougray Scott as as Wolverine. <laughs> yeah, um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, we, that that might be a nice little segue into some of the history of this movie because I was watching on the DVD and Stanley was saying um, how that people had been trying to had been coming to them and trying to do X Men for years and years and years and that they'd always been waiting for the right one because they knew that movie wise they hadn't really got it right with anything they <laughs> in fairness hand off X-Men to just anyone like, I'm not sure I buy that I think they did try and hand it off to just anyone and I was going to say in fairness like anything Stan Lee says can be taken with a grain of salt <laughs> <laughs> but the idea that this was another one of those movies another one of those properties that had been bouncing around Hollywood um, I know James Cameron's name came up in regards to Spider-Man it comes in, re- in regards to this as well saying in the early 80s Jim Cameron and Catherine Bigelow were in discussions to work on it um, that there were multiple treatments throughout the 90s that Joss Whedon wrote one Michael Chabon wrote, wrote one um, and this is the one that eventually came together and it seems to have come together after the success of Usual Suspects because Singer signs on to direct um, and then gets his kind of uh, he, you know Chris, Chris McQuarrie came on and wrote a draft of the script and it seems like he's the one who really got it going and then you you get into some of the casting stuff um, apparently Beast and Nightcrawler were in the original drafts of this script mm. but got written out due to budget 
and they didn't have enough blue paint. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, they they basically, I think, probably made a wise choice there because there was a lot of um, there's a there's a lot of the CG and the special effects that look like a little bit of a stretch in this when you go back and look back. It it does feel like a film that is rubbing up against the edge <laughs> of its budget. Um, but yeah, so Patrick Stewart was on board pretty much straight away. Um, Anna Paquin dropped in, dropped out of something else for this. Angela Bassett was considered for Storm. Terence Stamp was considered for Magneto. Uh, Jim Caviezel was considered for Cyclops. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the, the key one and the, the now infamous one is Dugray Scott dropping out of this for Mission Impossible 2, everyone's least favourite Mission Impossible movie. <laughs> There's five of them, and I think that's still the case. Um, but yeah, so and so Hugh Jackman turned up pretty unknown, was, was kind of suggested to Brian Singer because they originally apparently approached Russell Crowe, who turned down the role but says... I've got this mate back in Australia who would be pretty good. And he just wasn't a big enough star for them to cast. So they went for Dugray Scott instead. And then, yeah, Dugray Scott pulls out and Jackman didn't turn up until three weeks into shooting to play this role. And That is insane. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, and you can kind of see from his physique, he's not a guy who has got into certainly not what we expect Wolverine to look like now. But I kind of like it when you see Wolverine for the first time in that cage fighting, and he's a, he's a little bit more live and skinny, and it, a little bit uh, he almost seems a little bit more animalistic to me in in that guise than he has in his jacked up state since. It I I think it yeah it it kind of works better for the um you know he's kind of doing the rounds in the frozen north of Canada you know that he's a, he is a kind of he's a bit chunkier that actually. That works better for the situation that Wolverine's in at that point, you know, rather than him just being ridiculously ripped. <laughs> and I think the look, the look of the character as well is very simple, but just the, you know, the the shaved facial hair and not going overboard with kind of any features, just popping his hair up at the sides and going, that'll do basically. And then Jackman does all of the rest of the work. He's fantastic. Like he's got, he's got this character down. Almost immediately, and I love the moment in this where he comes back after Mystique has been impersonating him, and Cyclops is like, "How yeah. do we know it's really you?" And he goes, "You're a dick." You're a dick. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, that obvious. I just think that, that in terms of doing this character right, I mean, I know a lot of people say that mm. the moment where he shows up in X Men First Class and tells Xavier and Magneto to fuck off is kind of that character in a in a nutshell and as as well as they've ever done him yeah it kind of works but yeah i think they i think they get wolverine really really well kind of at the beginning i think this is like my favorite wolverine basically i don't i, I don't think i've liked him as much in any other movie and i'd love to we've probably said before haven't we but like wolverine's position is to be like a little bit bratty mm. a little bit like resistant to authority and in all the other films he is either trying to carry the plot which doesn't leave him much room to kick against anything or he's being cast as some kind of like father figure mm. or protector it's so a- like he loses he loses that sort of maverick element 
He's the he's the lead and or carrying the plot forward in both of his solo movies in X Men Two, in X Men Days of Future Past, which kind of just basically leaves X Men Three, which is not a good movie and kind of again kind of forces him into well he's the he's a like lead the role by the end that, of the movie he? anyway yeah so yeah whereas this he's the guy that turns up who's not a member of the team who's reluctant the whole way along there's one kind of element in rogue keeping him involved he he he's the guy who says to say when he's told that they all have code names he says to say <laughs> what do they call you wheels it's like uh, although the better question at that point would be how come how come you don't have a name gene um but you know that's by the way um yeah you know it's, that line is his attitude to proceedings throughout and and that's why he that's why he's the, more so than rogue he's the audience identification character in i mean this. that's there's in that scene as well where where he's told that he just says like this is the stupidest thing i've ever heard <laughs> and it's like that undercutting of the sort of superhero conventions yeah. is kind of what what the film needs and what wolverine provides Jackman immediately sells the kind of the interior life of that character as someone that you you immediately want to be sympathetic to. You understand when when Rogue follows him out of the bar, beyond the fact that he's a mutant like she is, you understand why she thinks that is a guy I can be drawn towards. Because there's no real reason why when he gets into that bar fight, we should pick we should know that he's a good guy in this situation. Because there's nothing we've seen about him that seems other than kind of drunken guy fighting in bars in the middle of nowhere, you know. But I, I think Jackman sells the kind of the sadness inside that character and the fact that he is uh, he's in defense mode rather than attack mode the whole way through. Um, For me, it's the bit where he like leans against the fence and like lights up a cigar, <laughs> where you get the you get the sense that like he. You know, he just wants to hang out and be left alone, but he's kind of being forced into this this yeah. situation. Yeah, um, he is. He's really good, and I actually think that the the chemistry that he strikes up with Anna Paquin is great as well. Because there's there's no kind of sexual element there. It does feel kind of like father daughter. Um, I think I think it's more more siblingy even than I don't I'm not even sure yeah. that it's a paternal kind of thing as as much as it's well, an older the, brother sort of thing. Like in the comics Wolverine has that tradition of like taking sort of younger especially female characters under his wing. Yeah, like Kitty. In a complete yeah, and Kitty and Jubilee. Uh I think they did it who did they they did it with armor as well. Mm. Like you know, it's never a sexual thing. And yeah, like you say, it's not even a paternal thing. It's more like he's he's looking out for them like an older brother, like still letting them do their own thing and not preventing them from being who they are, but supporting them, giving them the benefit of his years. I actually really like as well the... I mean, and we've spoken about this on X-Men podcasts before, the, the lack of kind of in the X-Men movies, you know, teaming the X-Men up and using their powers in interesting ways together. Because in this movie, kind of, we see characters using powers, but they're all separate. I mean, there's uh, there's the one cool moment at the end where, kind of, um, Gene redirects Cyclops's um, <laughs> Cyclops's uh, laser vision. Optic blast. Optic blast, that's the word. But th- th- there isn't much, kind of, in the way of combining that kind of stuff. 
But I actually think uh, whoever came up with this on a script level and came up with the idea of combining Wolverine and Rogue's powers in that way, in that early scene, um, where he stabs her and then she kind of takes his life force from him it's it's a really it's a really smart way of demonstrating their powers demonstrating the extent of their powers um and also helping to set up the idea of what magneto's plan will be um, magneto's plan is is really over complicated i think because there's a couple <laughs> of like rug pulls in there um but it's it's not like, and it's not. It's not the most compelling plan to watch um, unfold, but it does. It's adequately bedded in there, and it makes for a fantastic scene early on when you see those two kind of yeah, you'll see their their powers interact in that kind of way. And I don't know about you guys, but I'd forgotten a lot of stuff in this film. Like, how does Rogue survive being stabbed? Oh, there we go. There we go. <laughs> Uh, could have forgotten that Magneto was after Rogue and not um, and not Wolverine. So, like, I genuinely a couple of moments going. Like, what? So his pa- uh, I can I mean, yeah. I'll tell you what. What confused me in the plot sense was was Senator Kelly transformed into a mutant whose power it was to like turn into water, <laughs> or was he just so screwed up by the machine's mutation effects, which didn't work properly, that he died? I believe that he would have been transformed into a mutant and his power would probably have been like some kind of guild um, amphibian kind of mutant, um, except his body couldn't accept the mutation and it eventually kind of succumbed to it. So I'm not sure he, his power would have been to turn to water, but that was kind of like the full the full kind of, yeah. That's what I think anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it doesn't. It doesn't make it especially clear, does it? Basically, all they want to say is, if Magneto uses the machine, it won't turn everyone into mutants. It will kill them instead. Yeah, but either either way, yeah. it's bad. We don't want it to happen <laughs> either way. I guess again, even like even the plan of let's turn the leads of the UN into mutants is a kind of it's a very Silver Age sort of. I'm reminded of Batman. 66. I was just about to say it's a bit not not dissimilar to the Batman sixty six movie. <laughs> <laughs> I think it does a good enough job of obscuring it, though. Almost like the film knows how silly that plan is, and kind of goes out of its way for a long time to not actually let you know what Magneto's doing. Mm-hmm. So he's kind of doing nefarious stuff behind the behind the scenes, and we always know that we don't want him to get to Wolverine and Rogue, and we. We don't want him to turn the senator into whatever, but it, it, when it all becomes clear, it's kind of like, oh, well, the action's going to kick in now anyway. Don't think too much about it. And, <laughs> and yeah, and McKellen, McKellen sells it. But we should... Uh, the plan is rubbish, but the the idea behind it... So you've got, you've got these two guys who are basically... So the, the metaphor here... Was it in was it in the comics? Was the metaphor always civil rights? Because watching this back to me, it seems it seems kind of an extension of almost like the Martin Luther King and the Malcolm X kind of civil rights. They did say it a lot in interviews around the time that this film came out. A <laughs> yeah. lot. <laughs> what that that it was that, that, that that's what that the, it was that it was Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. Yeah, just like I mean, the constantly. thing is. <laughs> I think it was more like obviously that was always present in the text like right from the start but at the same time I think it became more a civil rights thing 
when Chris Claremont took over because he started writing Magneto as a lot more sympathetic instead of like a classic Silver Age maniac. Mm. Like back in the day, Magneto was just a sort of raving maniac supervillain in the traditional mold. And it was kind of Chris Claremont who introduced the idea that he was a former Auschwitz inmate, whatever you, detainee, whatever you want to call it. Um, and sort of made it more about the ideology of the character. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, the reading has always been there, but I think it was a more generic prejudice narrative and it became more a civil rights one later on. Yeah, and obviously, I, I find it really interesting what Singer is able to do with the metaphor here, just in in the in the way that it's the the story is constructed because obviously you kind of you have you have the magneto establishing flashback um with the holocaust which is is a good you know it's a good way to frame that character who is going to be your villain of going yeah but i kind of see his point of view um you and then you've got rogue introduced in that in that kind of scene with her kind of uh, sexual coming of age sparking a mutation and then the, the the kind of implication being without having to see that scene is that her mutation has not been accepted by her family and she has had to flee <laughs> elsewhere which becomes a kind of a clear kind of like a, a coming out metaphor is it x-men 2 isn't it have you tried not being a mutant <laughs> yeah. yeah and and obviously that's that's something that singers brought to it and i think it's I think it I think it works well because that's clearly there and the and the Professor X, you know, uh, Magneto, Malcolm X, um Martin Luther King stuff is there in the civil in the civil rights. But it, it by melding those two it stops it being too specific to either one of them that you can kind of you can make the parallels in your mind, you can understand what the ideological battle of Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This movie is um, without having to hang it purely on one of them it gives you lots of identification characters because you you understand your villain you understand 
the POV of Rogue. You understand uh, Logan as well as you talking about being an audience surrogate. And it kind of then just frames the movie as a very internal superhero story because it just takes the bigotry of the outside world as a kind of a given. We see Senator Kelly set up as kind of like the face of the outside world. We understand that Rogue has these parents who are not accepting of her. So all of the all of the kind of it's not a push and pull about how should we how should the world deal with mutants because that would be a very easy question. We go well, we know what a sensible world would do with mutants. It would be to leave them alone and to get on with their own shit. You know, in the same way that you know what how you know should we be ever registering anyone? You know, we can bring up our Donald Trump reference of the day. Um, we don't need I think a reg- we've got we our do, own problems. We do not need a register yeah. at the moment. Like, <laughs> well, it? yeah. Well, it, it, when when exactly. we were watching it, like we were talking about how the film, it's like talking literally about registering mutants. Mm. And in the UK, we've got this thing where like companies are being told to like explain or like submit a list of any foreign nationals working for them and stuff it's like you know it's it's a fascism metaphor and it's still relevant like 16 years on 50 years on however you want to do it like yeah, it, both, it's the same the, pond, the same yeah. narratives coming up again and again All, but it, it, do, do you know and, and and that if that was the central question at the at the at the center of a movie because movies as well, they're always going to be more uh, morality-based than pragmatism-based. Um, because, and I say that as knowing that there are some people who say, "Yes, this is a debate. Maybe we should be registering foreign workers." <laughs> um, however much, however much I disagree with it. Um, but what I mean is, it, the, it's interesting that the movie is able to frame that debate as one that, look, it's not a debate. Look at all these mutants that we can see who are nice people. They're not dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it entirely internalizes that conflict and doesn't make the conflict should we register mutants or not it makes the conflict how do we deal with the fact that the world wants to register mutants and that and and then you're able to tell this really interior superhero story that doesn't get bogged down in in the intellectualism of its arguments it just kind of it, it allows you to you know kind of just spend time with the characters and you kind of see that there's one character that's probably going too far and one character who's not going far enough and uh, and that this is a battle that's going to continue on, you know into future films to another day yeah um, I, I just think it's it's a it's a, and obviously that comes from the comics as well because the comics are going to be about Magneto and X rather than the bloke down the street um, but I like how quickly it dispatches with senator kelly really as <laughs> and the outside world as a threat it, and it's just it's focused on its characters and it's focused on a very tight group of those characters um given the amount of mutants are in this movie and how many actually get significant screen time i mean yeah I, I, did... I, th- I think it's really clever the way the movie um like renders so many of the other characters as complete and total cardboard cutouts meaning that you don't have to worry about paying attention to Cyclops and Storm <laughs> and to an extent Jean um, like I think Frankie Anson's the I, I one who's Jean's better than the, the material but she's the fringe of the main characters mm. I think that you, uh, you you basically need to go into this movie caring about Professor X Magneto Storm uh, sorry Rogue Logan 
and then mm. maybe Jean, and then everyone else is basically just, you know, they're, they're kind of a, a function. They're there because they're mutants. Mm. But they're... actually, I mean, while we're touching on it briefly before you launch into um, something else, that I, I think James Marston. It's very easy to dump on him in these films, and indeed the films themselves do, and people tend to when they're talking about it. But like outside of Brian Singer films, because I mean I include Superman Returns in this, like he's actually a pretty good comic actor um, and has been in some quite good things and been quite good in them. Um, it's a shame that like most people will tend to think of him as being just like wooden as hell in these films with like it's... zero character. Yeah, it's definitely not his fault. I really like James Marsden. And in fact, I think probably if the X-Men films hadn't cyclopsed him, he would have been a great shout for someone like Ant-Man. You know, he mm. he could have done that effortlessly. He's a very funny actor. Um, and he's also, he's, uh, in fact, he, remi- in, he reminds me of Ryan Reynolds in a little bit of a way that, you know, he's he's kind of probably a little bit better at the comedic stuff, but can do the dramatic stuff when needs be. And... Um, yeah, I think it's just unfortunate that the movies wasted him in such a way because he basically does the opening scene. He walks in and he's the punchline. He's mm-hmm. the straight man who we don't care about, <laughs> and because comics, Wolverine and Jean is never actually going to be realised, um, and so we we kind of just have this this weird love triangle in the middle of the films that never really feels like it's going to be broken apart. <laughs> um, <laughs> But but yet the the films have got us as an audience members entirely rooting for one side of that triangle, but, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and and it can never it can never ever happen, which is sad. But yeah, I think you're right I mean, about Famke Anson as well. She she really does she elevates what she's given, uh, and that's why I feel like she becomes kind of one of the members of that. Whereas Halle Berry goes in the other direction. <laughs> Halle Berry, who can be very good, but is just entirely lost here. Mm. I, I remember when the film came out, she gave an interview, I think it was on The Late Show, um, where she said something about how she had been reduced to playing a superhero because there weren't enough roles for black women. So, I mean, that kind of gives you, like, the use of the word reduced. Mm. It doesn't like, explain. Ironically, it doesn't explain why she went on to do Catwoman <laughs> if she hated the idea of playing a superhero that much. Yeah, I mean, maybe she was having a bad day. To be fair, yeah. like you know, maybe she was uh, <laughs> Daniel Craig here. I couldn't even mm. work out what was going on with her but, accent. Whether it was supposed to be slightly African inflected or whether it was just, uh, I feel like because uh, in this movie <laughs> I was like, oh, that sounds slightly different to how she sounds in the later films. Um, well, I mean, we haven't. We haven't mentioned how much this the existence of this movie owes to the cartoon, because like again, Joe, you probably weren't even born when it started or something. <laughs> like the animated series was absolutely massive, and like in the eighties, the X Men was the biggest comic, and in the nineties, it was like the biggest cartoon or whatever. Um, like it was a, you know, it wasn't quite Ninja Turtles level, Power Rangers stuff, but it was. You know, it was second tier under that. Like, it was massive. Like, everyone was watching it. And that's, in part, that's why the movie was a success. Because it had kind of... A generation of kids sort of... Six to eight years before had been watching the cartoons. And in that, Storm had this really bizarre interpretation where she spoke, like... Not even, like, African. Like, just some really sort of haunting like 
ghostly Bizarre, really overwritten like, kind of yeah. she and sort of this very um it was like she was delivering kind of weird shakespearean yeah. lady macbeth monologues like it was just a you can't even describe where it came from like <laughs> i have no idea but yeah it was so overwritten and like florid and i think that's what halle berry's going for here is there, is there much more from this film that you feel like you can specifically trace back to the animated series? Any, like, the, the characters that it includes or that it chooses to focus on or the story that it that it goes to? Yeah, I mean, the use of, like, Cyclops, Jean, Storm, Wolverine, Rogue, like, they're all, all animated series mm. characters it's, it's, as well. It's, it's going for that 90s team, isn't it? Yeah, um, rather than returning to the original five X-Men. Or the um, uh, Claremont. I mean, yeah. well, I mean, a lot of the '90s team are Claremont, but yeah, you've you know you've got the additional. Uh... Yeah, I mean, well, it doesn't it doesn't have characters like if you if you're not doing the original five, the temptation would have been to go for the giant size X Men team, but it hasn't got Colossus, it hasn't got Sunfire, hasn't got Beast, hasn't got yes. Banshee, hasn't got Beast, you know, hasn't got Cyclops. I mean, has got Cyclops. Sorry, <laughs> uh, almost hasn't got Cyclops. My overriding. My overriding memory, because I haven't, I've, I've, I've spoken about, I've been going back and watching Batman the Animated Series, and my plan is that once I've worked through that, I might probably go back and watch some X Men. Um, but I, I haven't watched it since I was a kid, and my overwhelming memory was being up early on a Saturday morning watching cartoons, and there was an X Men marathon on, um, and there was this big story about Wolverine going back to find out his origin, and so that was that. That was like the my overwhelming memory was what is Wolverine's origin? Where does he come from? Because after the end of part one, where Wolverine was suddenly he was going to go back to where he'd come from and find and find out what happened to him, the next episode that came yeah. on wasn't in order. <laughs> the and... series had a big problem. <laughs> I never, I never got to. Yeah, and I never got to find out. Uh, so um, I remember at the end of this movie being so like so intrigued about the second one because I was I, this was like a mystery from my childhood <laughs> that was finally going to be answered. Where was, where was Wolverine from? <laughs> but so to me that was that was kind of one of the key things that had come from that had come from uh, the TV show that felt crucial here because the part of the kind of the idea of Wolverine being this lost soul who doesn't know who he is it's on the back burner here but it's so <laughs> crucial to his character and it's the the end of the movie pretty much sets it up doesn't it going well if if you come back for part two <laughs> this is what yeah. you're going to get um how do you how do you feel it, it does in terms of setting up this universe going forward then because obviously it it establishes that kind of sequel idea which you know for any big franchise movie feels sensible um but also, this is this is a movie that in the decisions it makes here, this is a franchise that still exists. You know, we talk about it being the one that kicked off this entire thing, but you know, these movies are still being churned out, and it is still kind of dealing with the repercussions of what this first film established. One of the things that I found most striking, and one of the things that really jumped out at me in particular, was watching the scene where Wolverine and Xavier meet for the first time because as it's written here and as it's presented um there is no deliberate undercurrent that suggests that 
they've ever met before and that Xavier knows who Wolverine is. Like, on the surface and, and as it exists when this film was the only film, um, it completely works that they've never met before and, you know, Xavier is finding out about him. Equally, what strikes me that they've managed to do quite well, and admittedly in some cases they've had to jump through some ridiculous hoops to make it work, but you could you can watch that scene now and it does not contradict the idea that they have met and Xavier knows who he is, but he doesn't know who Xavier is. Um, and because I think part of it is because you know that Xavier is a secretive and manipulative character, so he wouldn't just come out and explain to Logan that he's met him before. Uh, you know, he would keep his cards close to his chest. And actually... When have they met before? Um, days of each past. But that's a different timeline. Not at this point. No, but so that had never happened. That never happened to this version of Xavier. Um, well, they meet in first class as well. Yeah, but that's that's <laughs> kind of like a, a, a dude with his back turned to him in a bar that says "fuck off." I'm not <laughs> sure you'd be like. No, but I think I'm sure. I don't know. Well, days of the, the whole the whole time I think with days of future past makes it difficult. But I mean, I think the thing is, I just think. I think it's unrealistic, given where... Like, okay, this film presents the idea that Wolverine has literally never... His path has never crossed with anything to do with Xavier before. Now, irrespective of alternate timelines or not, that's demonstrably not true from what happens. Like, Xavier would be aware of the existence of Wolverine. Like, he he, he just would, you know? Yeah, um, he even, has a line at one point where he says something like, oh, it's what we feared, experimentation on mutants. Yeah. Like, what like what were you doing for the previous 20 30 years? <laughs> yeah, so you see I think that the whole stuff with that it, it's interesting because uh, with the with the knowledge of the prequels in mind and yes it's very difficult now to go back and watch this film and not think of stuff before. And I think some of the stuff is easily reconciled in your head like for me that's not an issue whatsoever. It's a little bit weird when you see Wolverine and Mystique mm. fighting or Mystique turning up in the periphery of any of these characters and you just have to kind of go like right, okay, fine. Or the fact that Sabretooth is there. Um which again I was saying this to James off mic. In my head, it's a guy who's called Sabretooth. It's not, it's not, not the same, same Sabretooth. Yeah. Different guy. Yeah. Um but the, it is it's weird watching these prequels, watching mm. this after the prequels. Because I, I tell you, the bit that I that I found the most jarring was something like they they mentioned. Uh, I think uh, Senator Kelly says something about um, you know apparently there's some uh, you know psychic mutants. They could enter our minds and they could change our will. And I'm going Xavier bloody did that to Moira McTaggart he's right that Senator <laughs> Kelly bloke is right Xavier did it except in this film yeah. I don't think I don't think there is the idea as much of yeah. Xavier having any kind of I, I don't know I kind of I just buy him on the surface I don't buy him as manipulative really no but that but 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 that but that's my point is that like as this film presents him entirely on the surface as the altruistic Xavier the you know the kindly figure that he appears to be what I actually like and and this is what I mean the point I was kind of making was actually that I quite like that unwittingly or not the prequels actually 
give you a depth that you can look at. So as I say, I mean, okay, irrespective of the technicalities of whether they have technically met, like I say, I with all of the prequels, I cannot buy the idea that Xavier in this film doesn't know who, who Wolverine is. But the film doesn't contradict that. I like that it's actually something that sits under the surface and you it's a new interpretation to the scene. The prequels enable you to come back and watch that. For me to watch that scene and for you to watch that bit with Kelly, they actually enable you to give them a bit more intrigue than they had previously. I think that works really well. Because because they never directly contradict it is the thing. It's one it, it's one of those things that I think sometimes it enriches and sometimes it takes away. Um but uh, but I think the film is I think the film is strong <laughs> enough in and of itself that it it almost doesn't matter. It, I find it I find it more jarring when okay. stuff happens in the prequels that I'm watching now than rewatching this back because this is still sorry this is the original text and everything should be should be fitting around this rather than rather than the other way around. The thing that impressed me most about the film is how quickly they deal with like like they have a lot to set up in terms of what is a mutant how has the existence of mutants changed the world and like it's a big concept like they could have started this film with like the the existence of mutants is revealed to the public for the first time but instead they take this line of they already exist so we're going to check you in at the deep end and here's everything that follows I think the first act is, uh, you know, it's a really deftly written screenplay. Yeah. That, that you've got, you've got that briefing with Xavier's voiceover saying mutation, blah blah blah, and then let's go and in two separate scenes watch that mutation in action, um, but in ways that is not just world building, world explaining is crucial to those two characters, crucial to the point of view, crucial to the central metaphor that you're going to work forward with. Um, and then you kind of, and then we see the real world present day stakes being established. Um, you know, I, 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 yeah, it's, it's just a really, really, it's, I mean, this, this for me watching this back, um, it, it's, it's leaps and bounds as far as I'm concerned, better than both days of future past and apocalypse. <laughs> well, this, yeah, this was going to be my next point, which is that how, how do the people who were making X-Men 2000, come out with like the sort of turgid and like incoherent movies that it when the franchise went on to produce like it's such a tight movie like philosophically and on a script level like they know exactly what they're doing and then the rest of it they're just like let's throw everything in and not even care about how it turns out like there's none of the none of the kind of you know, as you say, deafness of the script in, say, Days of Future Past. Like, it just goes on and on and on. I feel to like Seb fair, is about this... to rip up you on, <laughs> <laughs> on behalf of Days of no, Future I mean, Past. Well, I mean, yeah, I do really like Days of Future Past, but also, like, while there is plenty that's great in this film, especially in its first act, it does go on to sag. I mean, you use the word turgid to describe Days of Future Past. I'm sorry, but this film turns into something quite dull for quite a while in the middle and towards the end i think i don't know like, i disagree it's, like it's, which, which, which bit which you stretches about, are you yeah. talking about um the part where i where i was losing interest on the rewatch really um round about round about the point when uh the kelly thing happens 
from from then and all the stuff with Cerebro and Xavier being out of action pretty much up to towards the end of the Statue of Liberty bit part of, bar a few moments in the Statue of Liberty bit I don't know I, See, just, I like I like mm. that stuff like at the school like building Rogue's relationship with the characters like you get that nice twist of uh, her running away and then being sort of drawn back like and Mystique's involved uh, obviously the introduction of Cerebro as well like that was a huge deal at the time like <laughs> I suppose you it know, is easy we talk to about, take for granted now. Yeah. I was going to say, we talk about having like fanboy-pleasing moments in Marvel movies, but God, what? You know, that in the X-Men movie uh, <laughs> verse, that's a you know pretty big deal. Like Cerebro is something you can you could potentially cut out of the X-Men franchise and not worry about. What What would you mean like if that if they'd managed to get the danger room in this film as, as well? Just exactly. What wanted to. That, I mean, that's <laughs> the big omission, isn't it? No mm. danger room. That's something I wanted to ask you about um, in terms of the stuff that as a big X-Men comics nerd um, that you if it, so walking into this movie, the things that you wanted this films to do and the ones that it managed to and the ones that it didn't, because I've, is it fair to say that in some respects, this film is very uh, accurate to the comics and in other respects kind of changes things liberally? Uh, I'd say it's probably about as accurate as it is inaccurate. Like, it's one of those things that some of the core ideas are the same, but the the use of them is very different. Like, when... I'm pretty sure I'm right in saying when the film came out, Xavier's had never been, like, a general-purpose school. Like, it had only ever had a very small student body of mutants. Like the biggest point would have been when the X-Men and the New Mutants were both occupying it. So you're talking maybe 20 characters living in the mansion. Whereas this film did it as it's a whole school, like with hundreds of mutants living there. And then the comics sort of adapted that idea later. Um, I mean, it's still the same idea. It's still Xavier's like school for gifted children or whatever, but it's a different interpretation of that idea. And then in terms of, I guess, in terms of some characters, I guess Wolverine and X and Magneto all fairly faithful, or are most of them faithful. I mean, Rogue, yeah. Rogue sounds like maybe the one that they took the biggest liberties with. I was going to say, like, Rogue was my favourite character in the 90s and still, like, one of the characters I like most in the X-Men. So for me, I was always going in as, like, I don't think Anna Paquin's the right choice with this character and their version of her was not something I wanted to see. Like it's I mean, never she's never been my favourite character in the X Men franchise their, on screen. Their version of Rogue has the powers of Rogue, but she has the character of Kitty and Jubilee combined with a yeah, little exactly. bit less joy than either of those two. Yeah, like they I think she's perfect. In this movie, I think she's... I think in, in fact, I think it's a shame that they couldn't figure out a way to keep her as central to the franchise as she is in this first movie because I think she she works I, great as that audience identification character. She works... The, the, the powers are cool. Um, and I think she's the, she's the, um, the, like, the real-world kind of emotional centre of this film because she's a girl who's running away from home and then running away from the school because the boy she likes has been mean to her. And it just, it feels, I think mm-hmm. she helps it feel a little bit more grounded. 
And I, I, I and obviously I have no. I don't think I've ever read a rogue comic, so I've no kind of. <laughs> Funny you should say that, that character. <laughs> I just this this works. No, but it's. I mean, there's. You know, I, I I would agree with you that I I do quite like this character as she appears in this film and, and works as that audience identification character. It's just that that's not Rogue's personality at all. Um, I mean, I don't. I mean, just purely in terms of background. I mean, I don't know if you know that Rogue was originally a villain before joining the x-men um yeah i, I know that mm-hmm. kind of in regards to the captain marvel stuff that's one of the yeah and raised uh, raised by mystique right i'm not sure whether i knew that yeah <laughs> nightcrawler's half sister all of that kind of stuff is probably a good idea that they simplified that a bit oh yeah yeah i mean this is the kind of thing they don't really address like in the movie they you know justifiably streamlined all the continuity baggage um i'm just trying to think of is there any other like fan stuff that i mean the obvious thing as well actually the obvious fan thing that didn't get translated was the costumes like the x-men costumes are some of the probably wackiest superhero costumes (laughs) that are still in the mainstream like they're good they're good designs they're individual but they're very individual. So, like, obviously seeing them in black leather, kind of, you watch it and you go, well, that's not, it doesn't look like the X-Men. Um, and they, like, they went through a period in the comics of having them dress in black leather to reflect the movies as well, and it never really stuck. And they have that little like, aside, don't they, about, um, oh, what would you prefer, yellow spandex? And everyone does a little yeah. wink to the camera. And everyone goes, Ha-ha. actually, yeah, I would prefer that. <laughs> <laughs> but again, for this film, and, and that's something that bugs me now, and again, this is something that the Netflix shows seem to continuously do. Like, <laughs> imagine if we'd done the full series with them looking like this. Uh, Jessica Jones did it, and I think Daredevil had a little winking, a little joke about it being yellow. And Luke, Luke Cage Luke, yes, does it as Luke well. Cage. And it's something that I feel that we could probably move past now. I remember you said when we saw the Ant-Man trailer and there was, there was a joke about, yeah, Ant-Man couldn't come up with a better name. Um... It's, it's all that kind of stuff that we're like winking and nudging and like, oh, fans, yeah, we have read the comics. We've just decided to do it slightly differently. Again, <laughs> we just decided they suck. Back then, I mean, back this is... then, I think it's fine. In fact, it's a, probably a nice little joke to go, obviously, we couldn't do yellow spandex here, but we, we get it. We get it. Um, the, my issue is now you can do yellow spandex and you're choosing not to. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, this, 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 though, is why I think the Spider-Man movie is probably like the spiritual like precedent for all of Marvel's movies because it was the one that adapted the material more directly like X-Men is a version of X-Men whereas Spider-Man is the version of Spider-Man I I wonder as well because going back to this one of the things that surprised me in terms of tracking forward to the Marvel Cinematic Universe that we've got now is that this feels like it has more in common with the MCU than um, than the current X Men films do? In that, like we talked about, and it's you know Joss Whedon famously came in and punched up this script, and you know you can spot some of the Whedon lines from a mile off. Um, one famous one in particular, um, but there is there is enough in there that it's not taking itself so seriously that it can't pause to make a joke like that wheels joke that you mentioned, Seb. And, and mm. 
it's often Wolverine doing it. But even uh, even Cyclops gets a few of them in. To say how kind of you know, stay like, away from my girl. <laughs> yeah, which is great. I'm not going to walk in here and say stay away from my girl, and then the flashing. Yeah, it's 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 all the way it's all the way through the movie, and um, it's weird that it doesn't feel as much a part of the X Men movies now to the point that in that when the trailers for Apocalypse showed some jokes, and we went, huh. They're doing some funny things in Apocalypse. Really, it's been a while. It's it's, well, it's they had weird to, how these movies they moved had to away cut from a it. load of they had to cut a load of jokes from X Men Apocalypse. Like that that mall scene that they released online. Like it's a like it's a really great scene. I I can entirely see why they cut it from X Men Apocalypse because it belongs in a completely different film to the one they released. Yeah. Uh, it was good though it was good but it's, it is weird isn't yeah. it I wonder <laughs> what happened to the X-Men franchise that it moved out of this direction was it that they I don't know that X-Men 3 went I, I, I honestly I can't I can't figure out at what stage we kind of lost this um, or do, I'm not sure whether it whether it ever happened again whether it was just Joss Whedon came up and punched up a script and I mean well like I say X-Men X-Men 2 has that have you tried not being a mutant line which is funny it's delivered funny. Like, that's the one that springs to mind. But I don't remember anything of of any humour in X-Men 3. The little quips and asides that Wolverine has here. Yeah. Um, like, even Cyclops, I mean, the, he's a bit jokey. Like, he's killed pretty quickly in X-Men 3, so it's oh, not sp- like he's there to alert. spark off Wolverine either. <laughs> yeah. yeah um, I, I mean, I, I don't know about you guys, but I after re-watching this and I was kind of looking forward to re-watching this mostly because like it does feel like something that it's uh, yeah but it's 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 still I think it's it, it holds up at the very least I mean Seb you think it sags in the middle but I think as a superhero movie um, you know it, it holds up in, in the same way that Spider-Man does I don't think it's as I don't think it's as good as Spider-Man I don't know whether I just love it but again, that might be another one of it's a favourite, whether it's better. But I, yeah, I think critically, there's a lot that you can look at this film and admire, um, and that's important for everything that came afterwards. But just in terms of being an X Men movie, um, I, I think it's right up there. I can't, I can't think of. I think First Class <laughs> is my favourite, but I, I don't know whether it's the best. Um, I mean, having having rewatched this. Like, it's been a long time since I watched it with any sort of critical eye. And I think X-Men 2 is always going to be my favourite, I think. But I might put this second now. Above First Class, maybe. I'm not... I'm not sure. I would need to rewatch. But it's definitely... Those, two. those three, I think, are incontestably the best three. Obviously, Seb, you and lots of other people would throw in Days of Future Past into that mix, I imagine. Um, I'd put... I'd, I'm not sure if I'd put this above Days of Future Past or slightly below. For me, it's it's comfortably first class. Um, and then X2. But then that might change when we watch X2 again because I haven't seen it for a long time. But Yeah. I kind of, after watching this, kind of wanted to put it straight on. Just to, I know, I'm, I'm, I might. <laughs> I've got some free time after we finish recording this podcast. I might just put it on. I might just put it in the Blu-ray player and and roll away. This, I mean, it's this and X-Men 2 are the only two that I can consider as serious contenders to that crown at this point. Um, 
And given that a lot of people don't agree with uh, mine or our enthusiasm for X-Men First Class, it does... Um, I don't know. It, it, it's, for me, a, a, a country mile above the last three X-Men movies that we've seen. There's, uh, And I feel that the things that it falls down on are understandable mm. given the given the time at which it was released and given I don't blame anyone for putting these characters in black leather after Batman and Robin like I just I I can't I I can't blame them for that and I I don't really blame them for making some of the side characters ciphers because they probably didn't know at that point that this wasn't just going to be a two or a three film trilogy this was going to be a you know 15 20 year thing that that continued and uh, maybe maybe you don't want to toss away Cyclops and Mystique. Wasn't it you, Seb, who said, like, this is essentially a Wolverine solo movie and probably the best Wolverine solo movie for that matter? Yeah, I mean, it's in, in terms of the structure of it and how it's put together and how we follow him, it's, this, is, this film is Wolverine meets the X-Men. The, to me, the X-Men, because Wolverine isn't an X-Man until the end, the X-Men are the secondary characters in this film. This, this is Wolverine meets the X-Men, this film. As far as I'm yeah, concerned. But again, Whereas X2 is an X-Men movie, very much categorically an X-Men mm-hmm. movie. I mean, it's worth pointing out, like, of all the X-Men characters, like, Wolverine is... Like, if you can maybe make the case that Xavier and Magneto as a pair are, like, the core of the franchise. But in terms of solo breakout characters, like, no one comes close to touching Wolverine. So you can completely understand why if they were writing an X-Men script, they would go. Yeah. This film is about Wolverine and the X-Men are in it. Interesting. I wonder whether I, when you when you take a more macro look of it, is it a film where Wolverine is kind of the lead, but it's about the X-Men, whereas the sequel is an X-Men movie that's about Wolverine? Yeah. That's an, I think that's because a fair this, perspective, the, the, yeah. Every, Everything that's central to what's going on in this story. In fact, Wolverine is almost the MacGuffin at the centre of this movie. Why does why does Magneto want Wolverine? Oh, no, he doesn't. He wants Rogue. <laughs> it's not about yeah. you, Wolverine. Like as much as as much as you might think, um, based on your prominence in this story. Um, because yeah, we don't we don't really dig too deep into who he is. He's in all the scenes. He's kind of our protagonist, but it's not about mm-hmm. him. Um, I mean, and maybe that's the perfect way to use Wolverine. Just have him there, being there, being great, but don't ask him to shoulder the burden of the entire film. <laughs> yeah, because we've seen how that works. <laughs> Although, having said that, X, you know, X Men Two worked out worked out pretty well by making that movie about mm-hmm. him. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna gonna have to go back and watch it. Um, anything else that you particularly liked or particularly wanted to mention about this film before we move on to our uh, our recommendations? Um, there's a there's another quick point about this in relation to the prequels, which um, an element of the film that there's nothing wrong with it as it happened when the film was originally made and released, but that I'm I'm now disappointed that when you get the opening scene um, at the concentration camp with young Magneto, that that scene is not in this film followed by Kevin Bacon saying "chocolada." <laughs> <laughs> I was actually jarred watching it when it wasn't Bill Milner. I was like, oh yeah, there's another... This, this, it's, it's funny, that scene is so tired now in the X-Men franchise, the, yeah. the Holocaust flashbacks. I think 
uh, X-Men Apocalypse when you, when they go back to Auschwitz, mm. it just it feels really exploitative in a way that this film this film I think sidesteps. And I think there's there's a lot of ways in which this, you know, drawing the metaphor to gay rights and to the Holocaust and to civil rights it could feel a little bit exploitative to kind of reduce that down to a superhero comic book movie plot. Um, but I think the film sidesteps it. It feels respectful in all of the right ways and it feels like it's treating the issues with enough gravitas. Um, uh, you you forget how striking it is the first time you saw this movie. I mean, I saw it like, yeah, <laughs> I, saying, I saw it as like an 11, 12 year old and watching this superhero movie that starts off with this horrible like Schindler's List-esque imagery from the Holocaust um, it's it's really affecting and it I, again I, I, I admire so much of what this film does throughout its first, its first act in the perspective that that gives you on Magneto yeah. moving forward I love the, the, the small like throwaway line to uh, when Rogue asks Wolverine, whether it's whether it hurts when his claws come out, and he says, "Yeah, every time," and that for the rest of the movie, then every time Wolverine gets hurt, it doesn't it doesn't matter almost that he's he's invulnerable and that he will heal again. It, you you feel the blows and you feel the pain that he's feeling. It's almost like everything that's good about this movie, the franchise hasn't lost. It's just become I mean, a that's... little bit. It, it's become a little bit stale. It's become the the impact isn't as is strong yeah i mean that's that's the kind of best of the franchise really is drawing the parallels without making it explicit like x-men was always at its like clunkiest when it was doing things like having the legacy virus which was this obvious sort of aids parallel um and like things like addressing the mutant cure like that that's the sort of thing that the you know it's it's so generic in the way it treats like treats the material and the metaphor that it works yeah 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 and and like i said the fact that it's kind of blurring the metaphors as well that it's doing different yeah yeah that it's, that it's drawing different parallels and then not you know not zeroing in on one but I think it's I think it's nice that this film is able to say something, has a cast who are instantly very watchable um, and compelling in the characters they're playing, and then you know these are also characters that I mean, and this is something that the X Men films as they've gone on have failed to fully utilize. So many of these characters, just in concept, are really fucking cool. Like Wolverine, visually. As soon as those claws come out, you're like, oh, that's pretty awesome. Or when Storm actually gets to use her powers, you're <laughs> like, that looks pretty cool. I would watch a film where, where like, caring about Storm. We never really got one, I don't think. <laughs> but I, I would, you know, I would watch films that takes more time to explore these different characters. And so the X-Men universe has all of these little things around the side <laughs> and all these characters who are who are fun enough to watch, that this is kind of a romp of a superhero movie whilst having that serious thread running through it. Um, and I think the only thing that lets it down is is how silly the actual plan that Magneto has is. Um, 
but you can just fall back on the the kind of the intellectual war he's waging with Xavier the whole time <laughs> is more interesting. So I'll just I'll just decide to focus on that and then watch them fighting, which again is cool. Two Wolverines fighting, good idea. <laughs> you can't fault them there. <laughs> Okay, well, uh, great. So I feel like we've we've adequately uh, revisited X Men. Um, still going chronological through this franchise, as confusing as it is. So I think we do we do go on to X Two next, don't we, guys? Yeah, it is X Two next, and then yeah. X X Two Last Stand. Um, X Two Last and, Stand, and then the Wolverine, I think. Yeah, and then Days of Future Past. Yeah, and we've yep. then technically done Apocalypse. Although maybe we could revisit it and do the road cut. No, that's the wrong film. That's <laughs> Days of Future Past. Uh, so no, that I'm sure another cut will show it for Apocalypse as well. Um, and who knows where Deadpool fits? But we've done that as well, <laughs> so we don't have to worry about that. So X two, following in the Wolverine chronology, that is the next X Men movie we will get to, which is very exciting. Um, yes. But guys, before that, I'm going to have some X-Men comics to read, I imagine, based on your recommendations from this film. Um, and I'll come to you first, Seb, because I imagine James has got something mad and intimidating <laughs> to present to me. So I'll ease myself yes, in uh, with your recommendation. Yeah, we've, 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 we've already discussed our recommendations and yeah, his, his is going to take a little while. So I'll try and be quick. Um, it's about time you got to this, really. Um, it's the... Uh, first volume of Grant Morrison's new X-Men um, so basically in 2001 Grant Morrison uh, came to Marvel off the back of doing JLA at DC um, became the new writer of the title that was then just called X-Men, it was the kind of second X-Men title that launched in the early 90s renamed it New X-Men um, and revamped the concept, revamped the lineup, and really revamped Marvel's entire approach to superhero storytelling. Like, you look at it now, and there's elements that feel a bit dated, um, but I can't understate how this this comic is a watershed moment in modern superhero comics um, and for some of Morrison's run he's got Frank Quitely on art unfortunately because it's Frank Quitely Frank Quitely couldn't do every issue uh, but if you read the first volume which is called E for Extinction then the first three issues which are that arc um, have got Quitely on art so what you want are issues 114 to 117 of new x-men and also the new x-men annual number one um because that sets up some important stuff going forwards i mean if you um, buy if you buy the trade they're all connected together yeah. aren't they so yeah but joe will be on unlimited won't he because he's a cheapskate mm. so um if you if you <laughs> hey, do... I have to pay every month for unlimited <laughs> Dep- annoyingly i just saw this week that the adventures of gene gray and cyclops have been added which i had to pay for on bloody comicsology <laughs> <sighs> um if you did want to go and read some more i think you could go and read issue I think it's 180, 19, 20 are the next arc, and that doesn't have quietly for all of it, but it's a good arc. So if you enjoy this that? and you Is want to do right, a bit more, uh, Xavier's? no, it's it's called uh, Germ Free Generation. Oh yeah, um, um, no. Yeah. yeah, it's all it's 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 the stuff before it goes into the Shire stuff, which is where I think it slightly goes off the rails and then comes back on the rails for Riot at Xavier's and stuff. But anyway, that's getting into the later part of the run. <laughs> um, 
Can I ask for some context for myself? Yeah. At what point did Chris Claremont start to get shuffled off? Because he was still there in the early 90s, wasn't he? I think it was uh, he, James, he... was he still on at least some of the books around this point? He wasn't on Uncanny by the 2000s, was he? Okay, but... what, what happened was he got kicked off slash left in the early 90s. So, like, 91 was when he left after 13 years, I think, on the franchise. Um, so that's kind of when they kind of launched X-Force almost under him, right? And then... Yeah, well, what happened was the Image artists who hadn't yet left for Image were being given extra control of the title. Like, Jim Lee was suddenly allowed to plot X-Men and Chris Claremont just had to script it. So he considered this insulting, justifiably, and quit the book. And then Jim Lee left to help form Image, leaving them without their writer and star artist. Um so then there were sort of nine, what, probably eight or nine years of other writers. And then Chris Claremont came back and was not much of a hit. Uh, and then he basically got kicked off the franchise. Oh, actually, was he still writing the main book when Grant Morrison was doing it? I um, think actually Grant Morrison and Chris Claremont came back at the same time. I'd have to look that up. But yeah, Chris Claremont had been gone for quite a long time, and and had the had X Men is is what you're saying the the franchise kind of maybe stagnated a little bit in the in the nineties because obviously that as well is when Marvel was taking a certainly dive. it lost its top spot on the franchise on the charts and stuff. Uh, Grant Morrison coming back was the like, I mean, there's tons of backstory here, but basically Joe Joe Casada took over as editor in chief of Marvel and set about sort of overhauling the entire line. Um, New Avengers came out of that as their attempt to put Avengers back as Marvel's number one property and Grant Morrison. And Marvel Knights, right? Was that, yeah, Ma- that Marvel was, Knights was, was before he was EIC. Yes. Um, the success no, of Marvel Knights was yeah. what got him promoted up. And then his, his approach at Marvel Knights is what he then took on a bigger scale to, to went in 2000 when he became editor in chief, like yeah, with the launch and, of Ultimate and with New X Men. Yeah, and X Men, New X Men was the last, like X Men was the last franchise they they revamped. Uh, so yeah, I mean Claremont was back around sort of a year or two either side of Grant Morrison, but he'd been gone for a long time, and the the glory days of Chris Claremont were long gone. But the the other thing about this, in terms of recommending this now, like not just because it's a great X Men run and it's by Grant Morrison and Frank Whiteley, but this run, you know, started like less than a year after the movie came out, and stuff like putting them in costumes that weren't the traditional style costumes, you know, putting them in leather jackets and stuff was. I don't know if it was directly inspired by the movie specifically, but I think you can see a general trend that runs through both the movie and this. Although this yeah. goes into some completely insane and very different directions joe um, casey the was the other writer uh, grant, uh, <laughs> grant morrison on, came on uh, yeah that uh, wasn't so good yeah <laughs> not as bad as when it became chuck austin later though <sighs> well, well given what i can yeah. see of current x-men comics maybe it wouldn't be the worst thing to bring on a grant morrison-esque figure to try and revamp it again because as a current comics reader <laughs> i can't begin to consider the x-men titles at present they just look bad as an X-Men fan, this is the first time I've not been reading any X-Men books since I literally began reading comics because I just got sick of the 
general mishandling of the characters by Marvel. Like I'm just about to do a big a big event, aren't they? So maybe you'll get a big reset. Yeah, after a that. big a big event with the Inhumans. Like, excuse <laughs> me while I go to sleep. Maybe though, James, this is when they finally decide to give up on the Inhumans and shuffle them aside. Please. <laughs> Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. has moved on anyway. Um, okay, well, uh, James, what's your recommendation after that uh, that lengthy segue? <laughs> so, my recommendation is actually, it's four single issues. Four disconnected single issues, but they're all ones which introduce characters who are kind of integral to this movie. Um, so it's not it's not a huge amount of reading. Um, there's not a huge amount of depth, but hopefully it will give you some kind of interesting overview of the X-Men franchise. So, first issue, uh, I'll give them to you in chronological order, I think. Because uh, that will be the best way to read them. Uh, so, Uncanny X-Men 1, which is the introduction of the original Five and Professor Xavier and Magneto. Um, after that... You want Incredible Hulk 181, which is the introduction of Wolverine. Uh, Giant Size X-Men 1, which introduces a lot of the new team. Yeah, that's the one that puts Wolverine in the X-Men and introduces characters like Colossus, Nightcrawler. Um, is that the one where they go to the Living Island? Yes, that yeah. is the one where they go to the Living Island. <laughs> I, love it, I love it when it becomes Krakato. apparent Krakato. that Joe is learning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, finally, my favourite of the bunch, uh, Avengers Annual 10, which is the first rogue comic. Uh, it's also got Mystique in, and it's the one where she steals uh, Ms. Marvel slash Captain Marvel's powers. Oh, cool. So that's the one I think I had heard about then. Yeah. I, lo- I love that comic, so it's going to be on you if you don't. <laughs> yeah, I've been wanting to read that for a while, actually, since I heard about it, so that'll be interesting. And, uh, yeah, hopefully I won't let you down there, James. Um, but we'll move on now to our final section, which is the pitch. And this week, guys, we are going to stick on the topic of the X-Men movies, because what I want to know is if you could pluck one character out of the X-Men movies and plop them right down into the middle of the MCU. Which character would you transplant and how would you use them? And James, I'll come to you first. This is the thing about the X-Men, is that conceptually it wants to be in its own universe. Like, mutants don't really work in a universe where there are other superheroes. (laughs) Because, like, the metaphor is completely, like blasted to bits if you've also got spider-man who is not a mutant but like socially indistinct from a mutant like it just doesn't work having said that i am still going to need your answers to this pitch first (laughs) oh good i get the hard choice well uh, i mean there are only three characters in this that i'd really want to see in the x-men like in the marvel universe um who do I go for though? I mean, I think, I think if I could transfer anyone, it would be Magneto, because the Marvel Cinematic Universe is completely lacking any decent recurring villain aside from Loki, and Magneto is not only powerful enough to, uh, like fight the Avengers in any reasonable way, he's also got enough of a strong concept behind him that you could use him. Uh, obviously, 
it's difficult in that there are no other mutants in the Marvel Universe, but I think you could conceivably say, you know, there are other mutants and Magneto's just the prominent representation of them. Uh, and the other thing is that he's got a track record of not dying. So, the yeah, the MCU could do with a villain who comes back more than once. Well, that last point is hard to argue with, at the very least. Um, Seb, can you outdo Magneto? Um, so I, I sort of tried to approach this from the angle of the, the how, and um, I thought I'd look at what were my favourite examples of X-Men characters in the comics showing up in non x-men continuity that could therefore uh, not non-x-men stories that could therefore tie into movie continuity um and i landed on uh sword um now sword is uh, an acronym like shield for sentient world observation and response department um it was created by joss whedon in the pages of his x-men run but then got its own five issue miniseries um in early 2000 written by kieran gillen and drawn by stephen sanders that is one of the most delightful things that marvel have uh, published in the last few decades but unfortunately <laughs> His girl friday in space yeah um unfortunately it got cancelled after five issues because no bugger bought it um but basically sword um defend the earth against extraterrestrial threats they have like an orbiting platform orbiting earth and they head off alien threats before they make it to earth so they're shield but in space basically um but they are led by a woman called abigail brand um and her boyfriend is beast from the x-men um, and their dynamic and their relationship in that comic is just brilliant and wonderful. Like, she is hard-ass and sarcastic, and he's um, nerdy and cuddly, um, and it's oh, it's just such a great little comic that, as I say, sadly lasted for far too short a time. Um, but putting Beast in that setup in the Marvel Cinematic Universe would be great because it would fit perfectly in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, not least because it would provide a way to link the Guardians of the Galaxy characters with Earth. So I would want to do a sword comic, but that also involved the Guardians of the Galaxy... Uh, a sword movie, rather, that also involved the Guardians of the Galaxy characters and Beast I mean, from the X-Men. Beast, Beast was an Avenger, so that could work. Well, that as well. I mean, Beast is kind of the obvious one because I think he, you know, stands alone from the X-Men quite well because he's been in other teams, most notably the Avengers. But um... Okay, um, so I guess the first thing to consider here is would you want, if you were taking Magneto, would you want Fassbender or McKellen? Um, I guess it doesn't matter. I, I mean, fundamentally, James, I think there might be an issue with your answer in that... If there are no other mutants in the Marvel Cinematic Universe... Like, <laughs> he'd just be standing Magneto around, he'd just be like, be, oh, okay. What would his point be, he'd be just stood around yeah. <laughs> playing with metal? I, I don't mean, know, yeah. I think he would find it difficult to be particularly villainous if he didn't have that that um, cause to fight. So... I guess if it, if my answer, I think the obvious one is Wolverine. Um that's, I'm surprised that neither of you went for Wolverine because it just seems like, you know, sticking with the Avengers, that'd be pretty cool. Um... Well, it's too obvious, isn't it? Like, that was my thinking, is that obviously you want Hugh Jackman to be standing alongside the Avengers as Wolverine, but also he's he's quitting the role, so... But yeah, I guess just because I can't think of anything particularly that you would get Magneto to do, um, I'm going to have to say that Seb is the winner off the pitch this week. 
Um, and that is, in fact, it for today's show. Um, but before I launch into my usual spiel, um, Seb, I believe you've got a few updates for our listeners, um, particularly about Thought Bubble. Yeah, so um, we've mentioned this on Twitter and stuff, and I can't remember if we mentioned it on a previous podcast, but um, Joe and I are going to be at the Thought Bubble convention in Leeds, which is on the first weekend of November. And uh, if you're interested in comics and can get to Leeds that weekend, it's a great comics festival and convention by all accounts i've never been before i've just tried to go every year and finally getting around to it this year um but if anyone who listens to the show is also going to be there and you would like to participate in uh something a bit special that we're going to do there um i say a bit special not special as in amazing just it's a unusual episode that's what i mean by special um then get in touch with us um basically the episode that we record at that convention weekend will also be our hundredth overall episode coincidentally um so we're going to do um a listener special um anyone who's at the convention who listens to the show and wants to come and join in um we are i think what we're going to do is um, a special edition of the pitch where you the listeners can pitch things to me and joe and we'll pick a winner and the winner will get a prize um so if you're interested in that shout us on twitter you can send us a reply or a dm on twitter or an email to the usual address that joe will tell you about and we'll get in touch with you with some more detailed arrangements a little bit closer to that weekend um but the other thing um and this sort of ties to thought bubble because it will probably um, be what the prize will be at thought bubble and we'll we'll have some of them ourselves that weekend as well but we've started to do some cinematic universe t-shirts um so we will owe some of these to some Patreon backers at some point. Um, and also, Patreon backers, we're going to try and find a way for you guys to be able to get them cheaper than the people who don't back us as, as, a, as a way of thanking you. But if you head over to uh, Redbubble, um, our username is CinematicU on Redbubble, and we've got a few different designs, um, some relating specifically to the podcast and a couple that relate more generally to certain movies and TV shows that hopefully you might be interested in buying so um, we'll put a link on the site and stuff as well but if you want to go and check those out um, you're absolutely under no obligation to but you know every little helps support the podcast really so yeah, it makes us feel good about well. ourselves speaking of that uh, three new Patreon backers to thank uh, I was Andrew hoping Meyer, you would have got those ready yeah Andrew <laughs> Meyer Maria and Tom Stevens uh, thanks for your monthly support uh, if anyone else wants to get into that and have a look at what you can uh, receive by becoming a backer you go to patreon.com slash cinematic universe yeah we, we very briefly reached the point on patreon um where it looked like we were gonna get to do a season like an episode on a whole season of a particular tv show um but i think someone's um like pledge got rejected so it, it brought us back down again so but if we hit that level yeah well if we hit that level we'll have to commit to doing like an entire season of a show so take a look <coughs> if you want to hear Clark. an extra podcast from us <laughs> yeah it could well be Lois and Clark. Lois and Clark it could well be Lois and Clark that would be good <laughs> um, I should also point out um, you know Seb and I we are going to be at Thought Bubble if you're going to be there as well uh, you want to say hi want to grab a drink I also happen to live like directly opposite the venue so probably going to be around an awful lot see I wasn't going to mention that because now people can stalk you yeah no we're <laughs> definitely not worth stalking um but maybe worth saying hello to. We can have some comics chat, and that would be fun. So yeah, we're uh, we're very friendly, and we do not bite. 
Um, but for now, all that remains to be said is that if you're enjoying the show, then please do subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, or your podcast app of choice. And you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash cinematic universe. You can find more episodes of the pod at cinematicmultiverse.com. You can get in touch via Facebook on Twitter at CU underscore podcast or send us an email to cinematicuniversepod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. Goodbye. Goodbye. You think you know how the world works? You think this material universe is all there is? What if I told you the reality you know is one of many? Cinematic Universe returns in two weeks' time with Doctor Strange. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big money and transform your home with new appliances now at Menards. We offer the lowest prices and the largest in-stock appliance selection ready to take home today. Check out top appliance brands, including KitchenAid, Maytag, Whirlpool, Amana, and Criterion. Upgrade your home and save big money on new appliances at Menards. Shop our entire selection of appliance options online today at Menards.com. Save big money at Menards.